I am not unaware, as I stand here this morning, of what a privilege I have to be a pastor, to be your pastor. I had an unusually full and interesting week this past week. Um, I had, for a combination of reasons, what was an unusually refreshing and useful day off on Monday. It's my second favorite day of the week. And then on Wednesday, uh, the pastoral team got off-site together, and we spent the day uh, thinking primarily about ministry staffing going forward in light of Jared's coming transition, and that was a very encouraging day. Uh, Just being together, praying and thinking about how we can best serve you. And there have been several other times this week that I've just found myself so grateful for the people around me, uh, for this church, for lots of things. But one of my favorite moments from this past week was last Wednesday evening with a group of people gathered here to pray. Um, it It was just sweet to sit with others before God and speak to him together. It was just something good for my soul that evening. We're doing that on Wednesdays this month. We've got two more opportunities. And I'm not sharing this with you. Please hear me rightly. I'm not sharing this with you to pressure you in the least. Don't, don't hear any of that. Um, this is just an invitation. If you don't have anything else to do on Wednesday night, um, maybe come join in that time and just let God minister to you and minister through you Uh, to other people. It's a wonderful opportunity for fellowship. All right, will you please take your Bibles or your scripture journals or whatever you got and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John's Gospel chapter 4. I believe one of the most important things that we do on Sunday mornings is to simply but carefully read God's Word out loud so that we all experience it together. So please follow along as I read. This is God's Word. I'm going to read the first 30 verses of John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help now. So I pray, even though on one level this is pretty easy to understand, Father, there are deep things here. And so, Lord, we pray, open our ears, open our hearts, our minds. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus was with his disciples across the Jordan River. He's on the eastern side in a place where a significant number of people are coming to be baptized. And as Jesus' popularity is spreading, 
the religious leaders there in the southern part of Israel, around Jerusalem particularly, they, they are becoming more and more concerned. There's talk about what to do about this, this rising tide of influence and popularity that Jesus is enjoying. And Jesus gets wind of that, and he decides it's time for him and his disciples to return back up to Galilee. He's not afraid, that's not the point. He just doesn't want things stirred up. Not yet. His hour has not yet come. So he and his disciples prepare to leave, and Jesus tells his disciples, instead of going north and then cutting across into Galilee that way, what we're going to do is cross over right here, and we're going to go through Samaria and head up to Galilee that way, which was an entirely legitimate route. But it would take them through the towns and villages of the Samaritans, whom the Jews, the true Jews, usually did everything to avoid. So it's clear that Jesus is up to something. He has some reason. And so they depart. It would be about a three-day journey to get from where they were to where they're heading, a hot, dry, dusty three-day walk. And probably on their second day, Right around noon, Jesus and his disciples, they arrive in a small village right in the middle of Samaria, a town situated between two high hills, a town called Sychar, which was very well known largely because there was a famous well there, Jacob's well. Look, I want to show you something very interesting. Look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now keep your finger there and flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 48. I want you to see this. Genesis 48, and look at verses 21 and 22. Then Israel, which is another name for Jacob... Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. That's what John is now referencing here in chapter 4. This field on the side of this large hill where Jacob had dug a well. And by the way, it's still there. And it's still producing water. So they come to this well. They're tired from their walk. They're hungry. They're thirsty. It's hot. It's right around noon. The sun is just blazing down. And Jesus sends the disciples, all of them, into the village to get food. You think, well, that's interesting. Why did he send all of them? I mean, he could have just sent two or three to go into the village to get what they needed and let the rest of them rest with him. But the disciples go, and Jesus is now sitting there, probably on one of the large stones around that well, and he's alone. And verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. She's alone. John makes a point of that. There came a woman. Jesus is there, alone. This would have been a socially 
uncomfortable, in fact, very uncomfortable moment. There, there is a citation in one of the, the, one of the rabbinic writings from this time. Just listen to this. This is in Scripture. This is the teaching of one of the rabbis, but this is a quote. One should not talk with a woman on the street, certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. So what do you do here? Does the woman, the minute she sees a man sitting there, does he kind of turn around and go back? Or does Jesus get up and go to kind of a socially acceptable distance to let her get her water? Or do they just pretend not to see each other? And to make it even more uncomfortable, uh, it was no secret to the Samaritans how Jews felt about them. I mean, John's parenthetical comment there at the end of verse 9 says it all, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What had happened was, eight centuries earlier, when the Assyrians had come down and kind of swept into and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they took and deported all of the Israelites of any substance, of any wealth. They took them and they replaced them with foreigners who, over time, intermarried with the Israelites that were still there, and they're now living in this place called Samaria, named after the capital city there. And everyone who was there was pretty much despised by the pure Jews of the south. Um, those up there were racially and nationally kind of impure. They were compromised. They had adopted a compromised religion. So, so this little encounter here in John chapter 4 is set up for discomfort and suspicion and bad feelings and a hundred other feelings except it's Jesus. I mean, you read this, and it's amazing how remarkably at ease Jesus is through the entire encounter. That alone is wonderful to observe. Jesus deals with her. He talks with her as a human being, a person, someone made in the image of God who is therefore valuable and precious and interesting and very real. So Jesus starts a conversation. Now, at this point, the woman doesn't know it's going to be a conversation. She has no idea what's about to happen, though Jesus does. In fact, she is startled. She's caught off guard that this man even speaks to her, much less asks her for a drink. But Jesus is on a mission. This was why he wanted to come this way, because of this woman and the effect that she was going to have on many people in this town of Sychar. So, so he is focused right on her heart, her life, her eternity is in the balance right here. She says to him, verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I mean, here's this woman. Picture her in your mind. She finds herself unexpectedly in conversation with Jesus. She doesn't know who he is. And she's very aware of who she is. She is no doubt highly sensitive to the social impropriety of what's happening here. She's alone with this stranger, he's a man, he's a Jewish man, and she's thinking, listen, if you only knew. I'm a Samaritan, surely you get that, but you don't know my personal history. 
I've had multiple marriages, failed marriages. And right now, I'm living with a man, and we're not married. And I am not respectable. Why do you think I'm out here getting water all by myself at this time of day? If you only knew who I am, you wouldn't even acknowledge my existence. And with all of that running through her brain, she hears this man say, if you only knew who I am and the gift that I'm coming here to give you. But she doesn't know. She can't see. So Jesus gently begins to move the conversation to the next level, a new level. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she doesn't get it. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who drank from this well and his family and his livestock? Once again, Jesus gently kind of pushes the conversation a little higher, a little closer inward. He is like, he's like a heat-seeking missile. He's lovingly aimed at Her heart, verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And something begins to happen right there. Now she still doesn't understand, but she's intrigued. Something inside of her is responding to Jesus. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Even though her mind can't grasp what he's saying, something in her is awakening. It's been so long since she's had any thoughts of hope. And it's right here that Jesus takes a painful but absolutely necessary step. He, still tenderly, still lovingly, he takes a scalpel and he goes to a tender spot, the tender spot in this woman's heart. You know, part of me is reluctant to use these images. Heat-seeking missile. Scalpel. But Jesus loves her and there is a work here that must be done if this woman is going to be saved. So he says, verse 16, go, get your husband, and come back here. Silence. A long, uncomfortable silence. And then she looks at him and says, I don't have a husband. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is intentionally exposing her sin, but please notice, not to others. He could have gone into the village and met her there, He met her out here and sent all the disciples away. 
He's exposing her sin to her. He's forcing her to face herself. He wants her to feel the sting of this so that she can experience the healing. He wants her to have joy. He doesn't bring this up to rehearse the details. He brought it up to expose her thirst. Listen, the gospel requires repentance. You have to face yourself. The emptiness, the dead end, the failures. And right here with this strange combination of, of her shame and her amazement that he knows all of this, and the beginning of something stirring deep in her heart, her, her mind begins to open. She says, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now given what we know about the Samaritans and their religious system, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, only the books of Moses. They would not have accepted any of the other prophets. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is that wonderful passage that Moses says, and there will come a prophet. So it's probably better understanding the Samaritan religious system to translate this verse this way, Sir, I perceive that you are the prophet. You are the one. But still, she feels uncomfortable. She feels exposed. So she, she does what any one of us would do. She redirects the conversation. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And while Jesus is willing to let her change the topic, he is still on a mission. He is still a heat-seeking missile, and he will not be deterred. He has seen this woman from eternity past. And he intends to love this woman with an everlasting love. Listen to him, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is through the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you hear that? The Father is seeking people to be brought back into right relationship with him. And it's happening right here, right now. God is seeking you. He's reaching out to you. That's why I'm here. I was sitting here waiting for you. God's had his eye on you all this time. And then this, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And what you expect next is for like fireworks to go off in this passage. Like, whoa! And instead, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. And you say, wait, 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 what? What happened with the woman? What about the woman? How did the woman respond? What did she do? John, you're not going to leave us hanging here, are you? I believe John does this right here on purpose. John's gospel is one of the most masterfully written pieces of literature I know of. 
John does make us wait and wonder for a moment. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? But then, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. That is a highly symbolic thing. She's clearly finally moved on from the physical plane to the spiritual plane. The woman left her water jar. She went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. If this woman is not a regenerated believer, a born-again believer in Jesus, at verse 28, she is certainly on her way. And if you look ahead at verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he, to, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of this word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, there's every indication that this woman is among those who truly believe and are saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now obviously she still lives in this world. She's going to need to go back and get her jar and she's going to have to keep toting water from that well but she's a completely new woman. She's alive now, truly alive. There is a spring of living water in her that will never run out, ever. So that's what we read here in John chapter 4. And remember what John says at the end of his gospel, I could have written so many other things, but these things that I wrote, they are written so that you, reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. So let me try to capture all of this in two points, two summarizing questions. First, what's really at risk here? And second, what's really being offered here? First, what's, what is really at risk here in this encounter between Jesus and this woman, or if I may, in Jesus' encounter with any one of us? What's at stake? Well, to put it simply, what's at risk, what's at stake is a human life. This woman's life, the only life she gets your life, the only life you get. And at this point, as she's making her way out there on that day, this woman, her life has completely run off the rails and is heading for just complete and eternal destruction. Her one life, I mean, picture that image, a train designed to run on a track it starts from some particular time and place and it's headed for a destination, a good, satisfying, happy destination, a place it was made to be and along the way, due to its own desire to do its own thing, it jumps the rails. And now it's heading on its own through the wilderness, joyriding, or at least thinking it's joyriding, not knowing that up ahead is a chasm 
that will abruptly end and utterly destroy its life. That's this woman. And I don't know how old she is. She's old enough to begin to feel tired and empty spiritually. I mean, you can't go through five marriages without starting out desperately empty or ending up desperately empty. And we don't know exactly what happened with those marriages, but it's had an effect. She has given up on marriage, but she doesn't want to be alone, so she's just shacking up with another guy. And she's lost. Not completely unaware, but not completely aware either of the relational desert that she's living in and where it's heading. You know, I read this in John chapter 4, and it feels to me like John's equivalent to the story of the prodigal son that we read in Luke's gospel. Only here it's a prodigal woman, and she's made a mess of her life. And she carries her shame around with her. As a result, she's isolated. She's ostracized, looked down on. That's probably, we don't know for sure, but that's probably the reason why she goes out to the well alone at high noon, the most uncomfortable point of the day, to get her water. Women were more likely to come get water in groups. It was a time to socialize. It made the job a little easier, and they would come in the morning or late in the day when the sun wouldn't be so blazing hot. But her history, her reputation made it painful for her to come when she would certainly encounter others and be made aware again of how she looked in other people's eyes and what people were thinking. She would feel so vulnerable and ashamed. And every day she labors under this. She is weary and heavy laden down with this burden. And you know what else? She's going to die. At some point, she's going to die. I've already said we don't know how old she was, but she's getting older. Sooner or later, she's going to run out of time. Time is marching on in her one life with no promise of things getting better, and her life is greatly at risk, and she represents every human being on planet Earth. I don't know, maybe you feel this as you're sitting here this morning, this, this is your life, empty, no hope. Maybe you're moving through marriages or partners or friends or jobs or styles or vacations, desperately trying to find something satisfying and all the while more and more lost. That's this woman. As she trudges out to the well that day with her empty water jar on her shoulder, That's where she is. But then, there sits Jesus. And he's there for her. And he intends to speak to her, and he intends to offer her life. You know that image I used just a few moments ago, that that train off the rails, kind of plowing through the open wilderness, heading for that chasm of destruction? Well, on the track, there's a bridge a solid, indestructible bridge over that chasm across which many have gone. And that bridge gets you safely to the place that God has made, a place of peace and joy and beauty and rest. And that bridge is actually a person. And he's standing right in front of this woman. Listen to what he says, verse 26. I, who speak to you, 
am he. And he'll say it over and over again in this gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. Let me lead you. I'm the light of the world. But with her out there by the well, he uses a different image, something a bit more immediate. Water. So we come to my second point. What is really being offered here? Well, in one word... Life, real life. Life that is truly life, that doesn't last just for a little while, like some temporary satisfaction that you get from a new purchase or a new relationship. You know, in the chapter right before this, chapter 3, there's this famous encounter between Jesus and this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He came to Jesus at night. And in the context of that interaction, Jesus speaks the most well-known words in all of the Bible. It's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what is offered, and it's offered to whoever believes. Whoever. In fact, John repeats that word multiple times in chapter 3, all the way to the very end, right into verse 36, where he says, whoever believes, and the very next thing, immediately we have this account of this woman. One of the least likely whoever's you could think of. She's a Samaritan with her compromised religion. She's a woman with a tainted past to put it mildly, and who is now living in adultery, and Jesus is standing before her and saying to her, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, but then he goes on and he adds a bit more vivid description of what this life he is offering is really like, Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to that well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up in him, within him. What is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying, without any hesitation, without batting an eyelash, He's saying, I'm offering you real life that will not quit. It will last forever. It will be fresh and real every day for eternity. I am life, and I've come to give you my life, and all who come to me and trust in me will receive that life and have it in them. I've come to restore the life that God gave mankind at the beginning that was tragically lost when you jumped the rails and wanted to do your own thing. I've come to reconcile you with God, to reconnect you with God. I've come to wipe away whatever separates you from life in God. I've come to to win you back from those things that say they will satisfy you and give you life, but they are all false hopes. Jesus is saying clearly, calmly, gently, lovingly, I am the source of life, and if you want that life, come to me, and you'll have it. And all the time that he's saying this, he wants this woman to realize he came looking for her. He came to find her. He came to seek 
and to save those who have lost their way, Jesus is saying to her, I've come to rescue you. Do you see what Jesus is saying to us? Do you see what Jesus is offering? Life. Real life. Real life that will never run out. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come and give up his life for us just to get our sorry selves into heaven. He came, he offered his life, and he rose again to give us life. So this gift isn't just something you receive and kind of tuck away for later use. No, this gift takes effect the moment you receive it. You are made alive. You are qualitatively different. This effect is what I see and hear in this woman. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There's a transformation. It's not just... Whoa, you've got to see this guy like he's some fortune teller at a circus. No, it's I've encountered someone who has changed my entire outlook, my entire future. Listen, we can, friends, we cannot miss this. The gospel calls for repentance. Jesus calls for repentance. There's no life without repentance, a true facing of ourselves and the mess we've made and our inability to rescue ourselves, a turning away from that, a turning away from our independence, our self-government, from, from the impossibility of me saving myself and a totally submitted turning to Jesus, which leads not to despair, it leads to God who has life. And look what happens. Verse 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. It's amazing. In the space of an hour, she has become, in ways that she never could have anticipated, a spring a fountain of living water. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him and received life. Apparently, her eagerness, her joy, her, her new life was compelling, convincing. It's not so much what this woman said or did, it's what she now is. Fully and freely alive. And you can be too. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to not dismiss anything that you're trying to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray for right response, deep response. God, for those of us who have received this living water, I pray, Lord, we know too well the temptation to kind of revert back, looking for life in places where there is no life. And so, God, I pray, steady us. Keep us here at this fountain such that there is within us fountain, your life in us,
nurturing us day by day, providing something for us to supply to others. And God, I pray for those who might be sitting here this morning, some man, some woman, some young person who does not have this life. And they know it. God, I pray, speak to them, win them, grant them faith, help them to know the gift of life. Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son, that you came seeking us. Thank you for this life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.